Welcome to the 10th episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the underground bunker. Recently, Scientology has been advertising a big advance they are referring to as a wider bridge, which was to be announced last week. Well, it turns out that it's just David Miscavige's way to get Scientologists excited that local orgs are dropping some COVID protocols and starting up things like the purification rundown. In other words, it's pure marketing and not really in advance at all, something that Mike Rinder made fun of in a great blog post this week. We wanted to talk to someone about Dave's latest marketing ploy, and who better than the best marketer Scientology ever had? the man who came up with the famous erupting volcano TV ad for Dianetics in the 1980s, Jefferson Hawkins. Jefferson, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Uh, the reason I thought... <laughs> we, it's been... Gosh, we've been talking for years. But the reason I thought about you this week was that we've been seeing some advertisements from Scientology talking about something they refer to as a wider bridge. And it was supposed to happen last week, and I, I know a lot of us were curious. And then Mike, at his blog, had a wonderful post about what it turned out to be. And, and, and when they were referring to a wider bridge, this was their marketing for letting people know that things are finally open, they can come to the local <laughs> org, they don't have to wear a mask or gloves, and come on down and do your purif, basically. Right, um, and Mike had, yeah, the purif is now open. I mean, because they, they kept, I guess they kept um, flag open uh, throughout, um, as long as you went and, and quarantined for a while, and same with the free winds. But the local orgs, I guess, were not delivering some of those basic face-to-face -face things. And so now, you know, they want to get people interested. So this is their – it's a, it's marketing. You know, come on in to see the wider bridge. And, and Mike had a great <laughs> post poking fun at that and showing some of the overhyped, you know, rhetoric. And I just thought, you know, I wanted to get someone's perspective on that. And I thought, who knows Scientology marketing better than <laughs> anyone? Jefferson Hawkins. So let me let's real quick just review why that is, and 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 those of us that were around certainly remember your famous erupting volcano advertisement in the '80s that just boomed sales for Dianetics. But let's let's go ahead, and there may be some people that are listening who aren't familiar with you. Why don't you do a quick uh, background on how you first got into Scientology and how you ended up then being somebody that was so important in their marketing and, and advertising? Uh, okay. Well, um, I was working in, in commercial art, graphic design, when I um, discovered Scientology in Los Angeles. This was in at the end of 1967. And I went down to the org. It was on 9th Street. And it was jam-packed. Uh, I mean, hundreds of people in the lobby. Wow. Wow. Um, and the the intro lecture had uh, at least a hundred people. Every I think the lecture was given two times every evening, and every lecture was 
packed with like a hundred people in the lecture room. And you just don't see that nowadays, but um, it was like the happening thing. And uh, I just got uh, swept up in it. You know, I thought it was exciting, you know, all the stuff about past lives and, um, you know, it, it was just um, kind of what I was looking for at the time was some sort of overwhelming spiritual subject, you know? Yeah, how old were you at that time? I must have been 21, I think. Okay. Um, and so uh, me and my brother and another friend, we packed up and went to St. Hill in England. Oh, wow. I wanted, I wanted to join the publications organization. And they told me that the, the pubs org had moved up to Edinburgh. So we all got on the train and went up to Edinburgh and joined staff there. And I was... Uh, in the pubs org for, uh, I don't know, maybe about eight years, um, doing design and advertising stuff, designing book covers and books and just all kinds of things like that. And um, from pubs, I went to the ship, to the Apollo. Wow. Um, and actually Hubbard had asked for me to come. Uh, and he had sent a telex saying, uh, send Hawkins to the ship. And he <laughs> wanted to start a new uh, marketing uh, division on the ship. And so it, it was, and initially it was me and Ken Delderfield. And then other people joined it, David Siff and a bunch of other people. And we were the first marketing unit. We were making all the flyers and, you know, things like that. And uh, then I continued that when we moved to land base, I was in the dissemination area. In Clearwater, was, Florida? In Clearwater. And okay. uh, I was editing most of the magazines at that time. I did Advanced Magazine, Source Magazine, and the Org Magazine shooting boards and all that stuff. And I was, uh, I was commended by Hubbard a couple of times for my 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 advance magazines um, and advance and i have to say advance in that period we're talking like early 70s or something yeah yeah uh i have to say as a connoisseur of scientology publications the absolute best vintage of of scientology magazines is advance magazine from that period it is such a pleasure to read this <laughs> wonderful strange weird but it, it you know it, you, you it did catch that sense of wonder and every issue was diving into a different cultural uh uh you know history of of spirituality and stuff and i could see how you know, particularly for young people in that period this was exciting stuff and it definitely a, a very well put together magazine wonderful art uh, and I, I treasure my collection of those of those publications. I just wanted you to know that, Jefferson. Oh, uh, thanks, thanks. Yeah, it. I had fun doing it, you know. And that was when I I still had a sort of a sense of wonder about the whole thing, about the OT levels and things like that. So I was really projecting my own sense of wonder. I hadn't done the OT levels uh, when I was doing Advance Magazine. So hang on. So you were putting together the OT phenomenon column, which uh, people sent in basically their ghost stories about stuff they did with superpowers, their OT yep. superpowers. You were assembling that column, not yep. 
having experienced any of those OT secrets yourself. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I was as much in wonder as my readers were, you know, I was just I see, uh, I loving that and, uh, you know, making it artistic and making it aesthetic, you know, it was just, uh, it was a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and just for, just for some of the maybe newcomers, Scientology is this increasingly expensive journey where you're trying to recover things that happened to you in your past lives millions and billions of years ago. And the promise being held out is that if you go through this expensive process and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, you will eventually reach what's called the OT levels and you will literally gain superpowers. You'll be yes, able, and, able to- and immortality. Immortality and the ability to travel outside of your body and to affect things with your mind. And in order to kind of convince people to stay on the path, keep spending money, keep going through all this, was this wonderful column in Advance Magazine called OT Phenomena, where people would send in their stories about, well, I just completed OT5 and I heard my friend was having surgery and uh, the next state over. So I left my body and went over there and made sure that surgery went well. I mean, I love these ghost <laughs> stories that they would have in there. And the effect was it would keep people engaged so that I got to get to those levels myself. So that's what we're talking about. And, and to this day, that magazine and, um, you know, the Source magazine is trying to convince Scientologists, keep going, come down to flag, spend the big money. I mean, they're still doing it today. But when you were doing it, it seems like there was more of a sense of wonder and it seemed fun. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was a fun thing to do. You know, I actually edited out the wilder ones because Crazy. they were just they were just insane. You know? <laughs> I didn't realize that because <laughs> the ones that got in were kind of crazy, Jefferson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you you didn't. There was one that I received. Though this guy sat down in his easy chair and exteriorized and went to another planet and cleared that planet and then woke up in his easy chair. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I'm not going to publish that one, you know. <laughs> so then, uh, so tell, so, so uh, this is the 70s. Now, how, how did you get to the, go ahead. I'm sorry, I interrupted your tale. Well, um, it's a long story, which, you know, I tell in my book, in my memoir. Let me and let me just say, uh, Jefferson's book, Counterfeit Dreams, is one of the absolute best books written by former Scientologists describing their journey. I highly, highly recommend it. it. It Not only was he there to witness all of these amazing things, but Jefferson is an excellent writer and it will keep you. And you've written several other books, too, helping people leave, which I think is great. Yeah, but yeah. There was must have counterfeit, you must yeah, have leaving, leaving Scientology. Right. But you must have counterfeit dreams on your a shelf if you are a Scientology watcher. OK, go ahead. I'm sorry. But, you know, uh, but the basic story is I, I was really jonesing to do a, a big public campaign for Scientology. That mm -hmm. was what I wanted to do. Um, and I was feeling frustrated at FLAG because all we ever did was promotion to Scientologists. Uh-huh. And I was like, no, we're never going to grow by only doing that. We have to reach the raw public, as we called it, you know? Right. And um, 
And I could see that it was not going to happen at flag because everybody was stuck into the week by week statistics. And I knew that to launch a campaign, we would have to prepare it for six months or a year. And nobody was going to authorize that because it wasn't, it didn't affect this week's stats. You say, yeah, right. So, um, I, then at one point I was called to Los Angeles, um, because the, the executive director international who was Bill Franks at the time, um, they had just, uh, disbanded the guardian's office and, Part of that was uh, GOPR, the PR Bureau. And so they wanted to pick up the whole PR area and they wanted to find a, a, a PR firm that, that they could hire that would handle the church's PR. Okay, I see. And so I went on a mission. Um, I was sent on a mission to interview uh, PR firms. And I was on that for, I don't know, a month or six weeks or something like that. And then it was like, there was a big push to do a purification rundown campaign to Raw Public. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a, a whole TV uh, special called Get High on Yourself. Oh, wow. No. Yeah. And it was, uh, God, it was a bunch of celebrities that were involved with it, including a bunch of Scientology celebrities were involved with this I, I i do have a memory of writing about i think i've seen some did this have like wasn't muhammad ali in this or something like that or maybe i've got oh him um but there was a bunch of uh of people involved in it, a bunch of celebrities involved in it uh kathy lee was involved in it oh yes and um a bunch of other people. And so we were supposed to do a purification rundown campaign that was going to follow up on this and so forth. And it was like a big flap had to be done now, now, now. So uh, we put together a campaign for the PURIF, which wasn't bad. You know, it was, um, we figured out, uh, you know, the public to promote to and the buttons and the slogan and you know we storyboarded out tv ads we had the whole thing and i presented this to three executives three church executives at the time um and they all just sat there like stone statues and they didn't react to it at all and when i was finished they all got up and left and they, they said nothing to me and i never heard another word about it you know, it was just dropped for some reason. And so I petitioned uh, CMO Int uh, to be able to do a raw public campaign for Dianetics. Right. That was approved. I, I did find this thing, Jefferson. I wrote about it back in 2016. And I said, before there was We Are the World and Do They Know It's Christmas, there was Get High on Yourself, a star-studded, uh, if awful song about saying no to drugs that made use of some of the biggest celebrities of the time. One of those celebrities was Muhammad Ali, huh. who was one of several athletes who appeared in the music video along with Bruce Jenner, Magic Johnson, and Dr. J. Other celebrities included TV stars Henry Winkler 
Carol Burnett, and Hervé Villachez, and a few film legends, including Paul Newman and Bob Hope. <laughs> now, I, I never heard about that, but that's amazing. And putting it all together was legendary producer Robert Evans, who also appears in a, an extended uh, clip on a television special made from the taping of the song. Um, and uh, the uh, the main sort of Scientology celebrity helping was Kathy Lee Crosby at the time. I guess she was. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. That's wild. So I'm sorry. Get back to your story. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, I was approved to do this campaign. Okay. And it was known that it would take six months to a year to get it rolling, which it did. We, we managed to get it rolling in six months, but we did extensive market research and surveys and on and on and on. It was, uh, and that was the whole time period where I was learning how to get books into public bookstores because I have no idea. And nobody okay. in the church had any idea how to do that. Right. So, and I hired a guy, uh, Len Foreman, who was a former uh, vice president marketing for Simon and Schuster. And he was advising me through the whole thing, which was amazing, you know, cause he knew everything about the book business and he knew everybody in the book business. So that's funny made, because I, I mean, when I was growing up in LA, you know, of course, Walden books was the big bookstore in every mall. Yep. I remember Dianetics being on the on the shelves. Yeah. But you're right. You can't find it on public shelves today. No, you, you can only get it at the org. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. And so we got it into Walden Books. We got it into B. Dalton Bookseller. And we got it into every, um, you know, paperback outlet, including like, uh, you know, just these little... Uh, drugstores and stuff like that, that carried paperback books. And uh, Len knew how to do all of that because he had worked for Simon and Schuster. <clears throat> and meanwhile, the orgs were trying to just go in, send somebody from the org into their local bookstores. And that was creating a lot of friction and a lot of, you know, bad feelings about Scientology that these, oh, I see. Yeah. these aggressive young people would come into the stores. And Len told me, he says, you can't just go into a local uh, drugstore and pitch your book. He says, because the, the people that put the books into all of those outlets, the paperback book outlets, he said, that's mafia. Ah. It was Teamsters. And he said, if they see a book in there that they haven't placed there, they'll throw them out. And so... Um, you know, we worked out how to go into the to the little truckers and buy them pizza and, you know, uh, schmooze them so that wow. they were like totally behind Dianetics, you know. I see. I see. Fascinating. And then so then um, how did your campaign then become this incredible TV commercial that people still remember today? Um, well. We, we had gotten into the, I think we were up to uh, 85 or 86. And um, I had a, a, a lady that was doing all of my media, uh, Jan Gildersleeve, and she had worked for uh, Ron Popeil, 
the infomercial king. Oh, yeah. And she knew a lot about how to book media. And I had some ideas about it, too, because I had done a lot of um, studies of different publics and different demographics. So I knew the audience that I was aiming for. And I could not get my media companies to buy that way. Um, they, they just would not buy the media that I wanted. And uh -huh. so my, my, uh, the lady that was running my media, Chan, she came to me one day and she said, there's this new thing called cable. And it was totally new. Nobody had uh -huh. heard of it. And right. she said, she said, people are not buying it because it's not rated by Nielsen. And um, I said, well, get me the demographics. And so she got me the demographics of the cable subscribers. And it exactly matched who I was trying to reach. And, uh, and it was cheap. And it was national. And we had never run a national campaign before. Right. So I said, OK, let's do it. And she said, do you want me to run a, a, a small pilot? And I said, this is how sure I was about it. I said, no, put the whole budget into cable. Wow. And it was brand new, you know. And I had just finished uh, making the question ads, you know, with the with Jeff Levin's music, you know, pop, 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 and all that. And I thought they were pretty strong, you know. So, uh, and we had been running... Uh, I think the John Brody ad, uh, John Brody promoting Dianetics, which had, had been our most successful ad. Former San Francisco 49ers quarterback, John yeah. Brody? That... Yeah, John Brody. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, we filmed an ad with him up in Candlestick Park, and uh, it, it did really well for a long time. And then oh, wow. he left Scientology, and we, we stopped running it. So I had the new question ads, which had never been run. I had cable, which we had never tried. And so I said, let's put the question ads onto cable TV and throw the whole budget behind it. And it was a pretty ballsy move, you know? Yeah. But I said, let's just do it. And that's when the book sales just went up, 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 and across the ceiling. And, you know, it was that kind of a thing. And to remind people, what made the ad so unique was this narrator is just asking, like, what's the secret to a good marriage? Page 150. What's, yeah. How do I get ahead in my job? Page 85. And it just set up this idea that this whatever this thing they're selling has the answers to everything. Yeah. And then this erupting volcano animation comes on and says, Dianetics, get her to your local Walden Books or whatever. And just that sense that there's this book down at your local bookstore that has all the answers to everything you're curious about was, and then and then there was there was a style to it. It was a Jeff Levin that did the music on that, or was it? Yeah, yeah. Jeff Levin music, yeah. Very, very edgy, very futuristic, and very intense. Yeah, uh, it had a real intensity to it that made it just uh, something that grabs your attention. That was exactly what I was going for. I had a wonderful, I found a wonderful uh, voice artist named uh, um, Greg Burson. 
and he had this deep, deep voice, you know, um, James Earl Jones type voice, which was just amazing. And he said, um, you know, what kind of a, vo a voice do you want for this ad? And I said, I want God. I want the voice of God. <laughs> <laughs> and he did it. He did it, you know. Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard. Buy your copy at B. Dalton's, Walden Books, or wherever paperbacks are sold. A fresh look at today's problems. <laughs> and the result was Dianetics had its best sales of all time, right? I mean, for several years. Yeah. Yeah. It went on all the bestseller lists within a month, I think. And, uh, and it just kept going and going and going. And the orgs boomed during that period. And um, I know there's John Atak and I disagree about a few things in regards to this, but I, I've checked with a lot of different executives, and I really believe that that this era leading up to about 1990 was the greatest era of Scientology's extent. And I and I think around that time, it reached about a hundred thousand active members around the world, and it's been yep. shrinking ever since then. The, the Scientology has never had the millions that it claims. Never. But around 1990, it had about 100,000 active people. And I would say largely it's due to that great marketing campaign that you had run for several years. Had it, I think it had everything to do with it, yeah. Because it made it popular. It made it, it made it kind of edgy and, and interesting to be a Scientologist, you know. And, of course, David Miscavige, as the beneficiary of this and the guy running the organization with all these new members, he was thrilled that you had done such a good job, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> David Miscavige, um, he hates anybody upstaging him in any way. Right. And he can he. And so I did that campaign and I was recognized at a couple of events and things like that. And he never forgave me for that. After that, he hated me. He did everything he could do to dismantle my unit and to stop the campaign, um, and which he managed to do. And by 1991, uh, it was gone. It was the, that campaign had been stopped by him, by David Miscavige. Wow. And you can draw a line on any Scientology graph. Um, middle of 1991, June of 1991, draw a line there, and you will see that that's when the crash began. And and I would say that it's not just the fact that, that Miscavige never forgave you for such an effective campaign and then that it ended around that time, but also right then, May 1991, is when the Time Magazine story appeared on the on the cover of Time Magazine, yep. calling Scientology a global cult of of greed. Yep. Um, and you know the the combination of those two things that that epic Time Magazine uh, exposure and the lack of your campaign, uh, I think, began the long steady decline of of Scientology that continues yep. to. And the, the, and the stats were still falling when I left in 2005. They were still going down with an unbroken crash since 1991 to 2005. And I think that they have just continued down. Right. And the, the last really high-ranking 
um, executive to leave uh, maybe Paul Burkhart, who left in 2013, mm. he had daily access to international documents showing the size and health of Scientology. And uh, several years ago, he estimated to me that he, he would put worldwide active membership of Scientology at around 20,000 or less. Yeah, that's about um, what I what I estimate. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, th and that's before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, they had been, they had fallen into, uh, this sort of, uh, program where, like you said, they were just marketing to Scientologists. Yep. The, the one exception to that is their annual Super Bowl ad, which I think was largely motivated by the conflict with Debbie Cook at the time, but whatever they do, that's their one big outreach they do every year is they do a Super Bowl ad that gets widely mocked. Um, yeah. But other than that, their marketing is all aimed at the Scientologists, a huge amount of effort spent on what's called recovery. Mm -hmm. And that's trying to pull back people who have left. Yep. Uh, they spend a lot of time and resources on that. And then also trying to convince Scientologists to keep moving up the bridge, to go to flag, go to the free winds, um, not much external. And yeah. then the pandemic, then the pandemic hits and they have to shut everything down. Um, and I wondered how this might affect things. One thing that they tried to do is they first wanted to make sure that people were still engaged. So they started up this program, send us photos of yourself reading a Hubbard book at home. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Which, on the one hand, they sort of the the sort of language of it was just sort of like, "Hey, we're all in this together, and we're getting through this." But I also felt there was a little bit of an Orwellian thing, like, "Prove to us you're still, yeah, you know, we're we're watching you, yeah, exactly." <laughs> well, and, the other the other thing is, you know, when I was in marketing, I had access to the mailing lists, and I knew exactly how many were on each mailing list. Oh, okay. And that was, they had one list, which was supposed to be everybody. And it was everybody who had ever, um, you know, bought a book and sent in that sent their name in or had done a service or anything, give six services. And that was a hundred thousand. And that's everybody that even just stepped in the, the door. That's yeah. That's everybody, everybody. And, um, we analyzed it at one time and we estimated that about 40% of that list was what we called at the time offlines. So not engaged, not doing courses, yeah, not, not doing not... courses, not doing anything. I mean, that's the people that we call under the radar, right. which is the people that are pretending they're still in Scientology, but they don't do anything. And just to point out to people that, you know, in Scientology, it's not enough just to call yourself a Scientologist or have great reverence for L. Ron Hubbard. You need to keep buying stuff. You need to keep going to courses. You need to keep, you know, going up the bridge, buying books. And yep. these are literal statistics that are kept. And so that's how people kind of prove that they're online, right? Yep, absolutely. 
So uh, anyway, so that so the other thing that happened in the pandemic was that they couldn't do the international events, Jefferson. You know, and yes, you know this, yes. this is a big deal too. This is how they get the word out. Yeah, so, that's how they that's how they make a lot of money, and and that's how they release the new materials and all that is through these events. So it just seemed to me like there was a lot of disruption to the normal ways that they get the word out. And something I told Leah on her podcast, I was I was explaining that that one reason why I thought the pot, the pandemic was going to be especially bad for Scientology is that, I mean, Leah herself has talked about how even when she was filming um, King of Queens, and that was a daily filming, like five or six days a week, she was still going to the org every night. Mm. So she would film this TV series during the day, and then at night she'd go down to the Celebrity Center and work on her courses and her auditing and stuff. I know. It's just amazing. It is amazing. And I said, and, and so I've always felt that part of what the sort of control mechanism is how busy you're supposed to be all the time, right? Yep. Oh, and, yeah. then, and then suddenly, pandemic, you're stuck at home. Yeah, send a picture of us, send a picture to the church showing you're reading a book. But there's nobody, there's no reg. Right, no registrar has you know harassing you for donations. There's no person you know sec checking you or or going over your latest you know no case supervisor. I'm just saying it just seemed like it would be difficult for Scientology because they couldn't intervene in people's lives the way they're used to. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I thought that might allow some people to sort of look around, and that's dangerous for Scientology. Once people start reading other books not written by L. Ron Hubbard or looking, daring to look at, you know, the underground bunker or watch Leah's show. Yeah. I just felt like the pandemic had a lot of dangerous things for Scientology. It does. And, you know, I was having a conversation with uh, Aaron Smith-Levin and uh, about, and he said that there are Scientologists who watch his show. Sure. And, um, and I said, well, that's probably, you know, just the the uh, algorithm. Uh, if they have Scientology, the word Scientology is a part of their algorithm on Facebook or Google, then it's going to deliver up anything with the word Scientology in it. Well, you were you were around when they tried the net nanny thing in like '98 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you remember that? Yes, definitely. Yeah, they because, were trying to filter out all the M theta and stuff. Yeah, Scientology was very concerned about the internet, and they were, and they were Scientology was late to the internet. They want they didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, I mean Hubbard said that telephones were psychotic, right? So uh, Scientology did not want to have anything to do with the internet, and so they knew there was all this M theta, which is uh, you know the opposite of theta, which is good, and theta is bad. All this bad information about Scientology out on the internet, and that they didn't want people to see, and and this was like '98 or something, so long before social media, mm-hmm. but um, they felt they could control it. So what they did was, see if you you agree with this is what you remember, they sent CD-ROMs to everyone, I think, encouraging them to get that you you should have a website your own website on our, you know, URL or whatever. They had set up these little, this space 
where you as a good Scientologist could create this little homepage that said, I'm a Scientologist. My name is Joe. Uh, my wife's name is Nancy. We've been in Scientology for 10 years. And what they didn't tell them was that as they were creating this cute little homepage on the Scientology network, whatever, that it was installing software on their computer that would filter out any website that used keywords like Scientology or Xenu or all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And it, it was called the Net Nanny. Do you remember having to deal with that? Mm -hmm. I remember when that when that came out. You know, the problem with that is the problem that they have nowadays with um, with disseminating, which is that any way you cut it, Scientologists are ashamed of being Scientologists. Uh, yeah. And Good so point. are they going to put up a website that says, hi, I'm a Scientologist? No, they're not. They don't want people to know. And, you know, I always contrast that when I was getting into Scientology. It was like everybody was getting into Scientology. And I had a bumper sticker on my car, true story, <laughs> that said, ask me about Scientology. Wow. And, you know, it was kind of the hip thing to be, you know, it was to be a Scientologist, you know. And, uh, and I would have people literally stop me and say, okay, what's it all about? You know, they wanted to know. Wow. But can you imagine any Scientologist today having a bumper sticker that said, ask me about Scientologists? Wouldn't happen. No. Because right. they're ashamed of being Scientologists because Scientology is so... Um, you know, disliked and distrusted. And to this day, there's they don't have the net nanny, but they're still trying to have social media police, which is that, yeah. um, you know, Scientologists, people ask, people are surprised when I tell them I see, I see Scientologists doing certain things on, on Facebook. And they're like, well, I didn't think Scientologists could be online. And that's I think that's left over from the stories about the net nanny in the late 90s. No, yep. Scientologists are definitely online today, and Scientology itself has definitely embraced the Internet. However, Scientologists know that if they look at things online that they're not supposed to, they will get hauled in for an interrogation. It'll last weeks. It'll cost them thousands of dollars. So Scientologists, Scientologists are very good at policing themselves and keeping away from that material, but just in case, they also have various people who act as Facebook police. So I, you know, I've heard many stories from people that said that, you know, some of these, I don't know if they're self-appointed or if OSA asks them to help out, but there are certain people who are notor notorious for going around and saying, I looked at your friends list and you've got two people on there who are against Scientology and you need to get them off. So they, they will yeah, yeah. watch, they will watch you and make sure that you're not, I mean, but you make a good point that they're not going to be able to stop the algorithms I mean, it's insane now. I remember the other day, I I just, I don't know if I, I mentioned the word Colorado in an email to somebody, and like 10 minutes later, I had ads for skiing vacations in Colorado <laughs> on my Facebook. Yeah, it's, crazy. it's just crazy. I mean, it's so, the surveillance, it's really disturbing. But the point is that that algorithm, Scientologists must be getting recommendations to Leah's podcast, my website, you know, and they just have to be firm and, and not click on it. 
Yeah, exactly. But they do click on it. You know, this is right. what Aaron was telling me. He gets people, uh, you know, making comments and stuff like that from Scientologists. Yeah. 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 So I think it's a losing battle myself. I think they're always going to kind of find the end theta content. Well, and in that, so in that environment, with the pandemic shutting things down and making it more difficult, and as you point out, Scientologists don't really want to advertise that they're Scientologists anyway. In all of this environment now, you know, they've worn masks and worn gloves. Of course, we knew we knew within the first few months that gloves were useless. But Scientologists, you know, my personal theory is that Dave is terrified personally that yeah. he's going to he's going to catch COVID and die. But yeah. whatever. The, the point is they've kept these protocols long after other people have. And yeah. now they've decided, OK, we're going to let people come in and we're going to let them do the Purif and we're going to let them do. We want them to do student hat and all these low level things. And so they want to make a big splash about it. And so they've called it the wider bridge. So I just, as as a so as a as a networking expert, I mean, as a marketing expert, tell me what you think about this approach that they're they're coming with. Well, it's um, you know they don't have any marketing people left. There's nobody left um, at the ant base capable of doing a marketing campaign. They got rid of all of them. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's. I left, there was, I think, six people left in marketing. And they they weren't the best people. You know, this winnowing, <laughs> the winnowing process right. had not ended up with the best people. It had ended up with the most incompetent people. And um, which is unfortunately the way things work in Scientology is that the people who are doing the work are the ones who are always in trouble. And the, and the people that just sort of try to hide and be invisible are never in trouble. So you end up with only the people that are trying to hide and be invisible. Yeah. And um, so the six people that were left after I left marketing were not the best. They were not the best people. And none of them were capable of writing or executing a, a, a genuine marketing campaign. So I think that the, this is how I imagine it. I think that the marketing decisions are being made around a conference room table uh, by Miscavige and, you know, whatever flunkies are, are still in good standing, you know? Right. And I think that they just bat around, uh, bat around ideas and, um, you know, come up with something and then everybody goes and then Miscavige goes, oh, that sounds good. And then everybody jumps in and says, yeah, 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 that's great. That's great. <laughs> now, that's marketing, probably how marketing goes these days. And I'm sure they. I'm sure the conversation went something like this. They say, well, how do we communicate to to Scientologists that the, the orgs are, are like wide open now? They're wide open. And somebody says, oh, let's just say it's a wider bridge. And everybody goes, yay, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And then they publish it. And it's just, it makes no sense, you know? On the one hand, it doesn't really make any sense because they're really just saying, hey, we know we've been overly cautious about this stuff. 
we should have just told you all to get vaccinated, but we never did. They never did say a word about the vaccine. And so they just, they, they've just kept everything shut down longer than most other people have. They've now opened their doors and they want people to come in. That's it. That's all that's going on. There's nothing new. There's nothing wider. It's yeah. just, they want people to come in and, and they need some kind of an announcement that makes it seem like there's, I mean, you know how Dave is. Everything has to be like the biggest thing ever. It's yeah. always the biggest thing ever, even when it isn't. And so this is what they came up with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's like uh, every event has to be the most amazing thing that has ever happened. And you can't miss it. The secret thing is going to be revealed to you, you know, and uh, yeah. it's, it's just nuts. It's just nuts. Well, I, I, you know, look, they needed to get the word out. They want people to come in. Um, and I guess the subtler thing that this says is, okay, we know you've been sitting at home, but you need to get your ass in here and spend money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so maybe that's somewhat effective. But, yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I was talking to, to Mark Headley recently, and he was saying that, you know, you're never going to convince a Scientologist straight out if you just – if your first conversation is, Z news ridiculous and the E meter doesn't work. It's just not going to have any effect. But if if you instead say, look, look at the things that have been promised and it's not working out, that yeah. that might get through. And I think part of Dave's problem is he keeps promising these huge, fantastic things. And I just have to wonder if a Scientologist doesn't like spend you know, the last few weeks thinking wider bridge, this is a bit, this is the big one. And then it's like, Oh, they're not wearing gloves anymore. Oh, that's it. And I, I just have to think there's some Scientologists out there that sort of think like that. Wait a minute. This is not, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. Some, I guess it can be really hard to break through. Yeah. It's, it's hard to break through. I mean, um, you know, I've I've sort of had one technique that I use with Scientologists um, to undo. It's an attempt to undo the kind of brainwashing that they have, um, because uh, there's an essay by Hubbard called "How to Study Scientology." I don't know if you're familiar with that. I don't think I am. Go ahead. He says. Um, if you're reading a book or anything like that, find something you agree with and then find another thing that you agree with and then find another thing that you agree with. That's that. He says, that's how you study Scientology. Well, of course, that's a hypnotic technique. Yeah. Is agreement, agreement, agreement. And it's a sales. You know, the sale, the, the savvy salesman knows to get the, get the customer agreeing you know do you agree with this do you agree with that you get the customer nodding right up to the the point of sale you know? yeah so what i do what i would ask scientologists is is there anything in scientology that you disagree with anything in scientology or scientology that you disagree with and if you get them started talking uh, on on that subject, it's like unraveling a sweater, you know, 
you just pick wow. up that thread and right. then there's and then it there's more and more and more and you know, what are some what are some of the things people have told you when you ask them that um well generally these days they'll say well you know i agree with scientology but i don't agree with management you know i i don't agree with always being pressed for money you know i don't agree with having to go to all these events you know they'll find things that they disagree with and then they'll they'll start finding them by themselves right you know, and they go oh there was that other thing you know when i was on course and i had a question for the soup and I really wasn't happy with his answer, and I didn't agree with what he was saying, and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, there's, uh, they'll start unraveling the whole thing themselves after a while. And then you get a call from a week later, and they say, okay, I'm out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I, I think I talked over you earlier. I want to make sure people know that you actually have a book about all this called Leaving Scientology. Leaving Scientology, yeah. Another excellent book by you, helping people, uh, because it is a process, right? I mean, people go through stages on their way out. Maybe initially it's some unhappiness with registrars and David Miscavige, but then, you know, they start to see the larger problems, and it takes it's it's just a, it's a process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I was mentioning the other day that. I think my turning point came when I was at the Ent base and I was thinking about that we were all working towards a Scientology world. And I started thinking about, well, what would that look like if just everybody around you was applying Scientology? And then I thought, well, I guess it would look like the Ent base. And then I went, oh, no, because the Ent base... <laughs> horrible place you could ever uh imagine you know yeah yeah it's completely dysfunctional everybody abuses everybody else and i and i looked at that and i thought wait a minute that's what a scientology world would look like is this place that's and, a great point and then i was just like okay i'm out of here i gotta get out you know and just to point out for uh, our, our listeners that it base is a reference to the international management base that's 90 miles east of Los Angeles in San Jacinto, California, near Hemet. It's this 500-acre compound that in the 90s and early 2000s was the, you know, main, central, secretive, highest-level place. David Miscavige lived there, and uh, Mark Headley and Claire Headley were there. We've heard lots of stories about this famous place, also known as Gold, because the Golden Era Productions was there making videos and all this kind of thing. But Dave has largely abandoned that place now. And he's now living in Florida, and he's at the Flag Land Base, which is a very different kind of thing. Uh, and I think he's you know, let it basically wither on the vine. And it's just not the central brain of Scientology that it used to be. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um... You know, it's been my theory for a long time that Scientology is going to eventually collapse into Clearwater and uh, and abandon everything else and uh, sort of set up Clearwater as their last last stand. You know, I agree with you. I've I've been saying for years that I think they're circling the wagons there, and yes, they're putting on this show 
about ideal orgs around the world, but that's all it is. Ideal orgs is merely a show to convince wealthy donors that Scientology is still a going concern. Yeah. And so, yes, they still are opening place buildings. The next set will be in places like Austin and Chicago and New Haven and, and Hawaii and all that. And they're spending millions on all that, but really he's concentrating things in Clearwater, Florida at the flag land base. Celebrities are selling their homes in other parts of the country and moving there. Yeah. And I really, I really think that is that Miscavige himself knows that there's going to be kind of a last stand and it's going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Did you spend much time at flag at all? A little bit. You know, I went there a couple of times, um, usually marketing related, you know, um, to, uh, release, uh, release some new um, materials or something like that. Uh, I went there a couple of times. But, you know, the thing is that that's one of the few places on Earth that where Miscavige is still respected. Right. You know, the Ent the base doesn't like Miscavige. You know? or, or as Mark Headley put it, the only place where he's not hated. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Or at least not openly. <laughs> hated. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, everybody is very subservient and very respectful of him there. And, um, you know, which that's okay, you know. Um, the few times I went to Flag, I found that I was treated very respectfully because I was from Int. Yeah. And, and at that time, if I was at Int, I was treated like shit. <laughs> so yeah that's a nice that's a nice change you know well it's interesting scientology is so hierarchical i mean it's you know there's such a pecking order yep uh throughout the sea org and even among the celebrities and the public you know it's it's interesting they're so authoritarian yeah and at the end base it, there were there were echelons and you know uh, gold was at the bottom of the barrel so if you were in gold you were just you were the worst of the worst you were just shit i see and then um cmo ant looked down on the exec strata and rtc looked down on everybody so you know it was very very hierarchical and very judgmental Well, he's got to somehow convince everyone to get excited for this new change and to get back on lines and to keep coming to Clearwater and spend money. <clears throat> so um, I don't know. Maybe a wider bridge will help them. We'll see. But uh, yeah. they surely are hurting without someone like you there uh, figuring out their marketing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They have no clue about how to market anything. And... and Miscavige could not market his way out of a paper bag, you know? Well, he has no clue. But, you know, we're all better off that you're no longer there, Jokers. Yes. Yes. And uh, thank you so much for helping me out on this. We'll, uh, I'll be watching to see, you know, this. I, I totally agree with you. I think Clearwater is kind of a last stand for them, and it's going to be getting. Um, more intense as 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 things go on because i think 
there's more pressures with these lawsuits, and who knows? Maybe the government will finally take a look. But yeah. uh, anyway, well, uh, thank you so I, much. I'm for interested to out. see how they how they uh, work out closing orcs because it's got to be yes. done very carefully so that it does not appear that they're closing orcs. And I know they've done it here in Portland. Portland used to have three orcs, Day and Foundation and uh, a, a celebrity center. And it's only the Day Org that is still left. In that ideal org they opened about nine years ago? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they have a big wow. building that is utterly empty. Did I tell you I went in and talked to them? No. When was that? This was a couple of weeks ago. Oh, my. <laughs> well, they had sent somehow their uh, their flyers had ended up in our mailbox. And so I thought, OK, I'm going to return them. So I went down there, marched in, put them on the counter and said, uh, we don't need these. You know, stop putting stuff into our mailbox. And I said, I said, I'm not curious about Scientology at, our, at all. <laughs> not I, curious. I said, do you want to know why I'm not curious? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, I was in Scientology for 35 years. I was in the Sea Org. I'm OT4, uh, FEBC, OEC, DSCC trained. And they were like, oh, okay. And then I told them, I said, you remember the Dianetics campaign in the 1980s, which they did. And I said, well, I did that. I was commended by LRH, blah, 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 blah. And I said, I said, I am curious about only one thing. And I said, how you keep the lights on <laughs> with no people coming in. <laughs> what did they say? Uh, they just didn't say anything, really. And I said, I said, um, I will tell you what int management will not tell you. There's only two ways to get people into Scientology, books and word of mouth. Those are the only two things that work. I said, your videos that, you know, because they have one of those reception areas where it's just video players. You know? Right. I said, your videos don't work. Your flyers don't work. None of that works. I said, it's, it's word of mouth and, uh, and books getting books out there. I said, if you do those two things, you can get people in. Otherwise, forget it. You're not going to get anybody in. And then I handed them those two people in reception. I handed them each a copy of my book, <gasps> Counterfeit Dreams. And I said, you know, here, read this. You might learn a lot, you know. Good for you. <laughs> and I said, I said, people will tell you not to read this book because it was written by an SP. I said, yeah, an SP that boomed Scientology and had commendations from LRH, you know, gosh, so I don't I know, you know, maybe they'll read it. I hope they do. That's gosh, you know, Portland is an important, really important location in Scientology history because of this campaign back in 1985, there was a lawsuit resulted yep. in a $30 million judgment and Scientology had this huge campaign. People from all over the country went there and, and, and demonstrated and a judge blinked and he, he, he basically, uh, uh, kind of uh, changed his mind about it or, 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 or subverted the jury, whatever. Scientology won. It was a huge victory. And Portland is always, in Scientology imagination, this like great yeah. city where Scientology won. And so when they opened their ideal org in 2013, I think, it was a big deal. You know, this is, 
this is the ideal org in this city that we already kind of claim as a you know great Scientology city. Yeah. And it's just been empty since then. I mean, it's just like all the other ideal orgs. Yeah, it's just it's a great empty. question. And they also camouflage the fact that, that they closed two orgs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those that day of reckoning is coming and uh it'll be fun to talk with you about it so but listen thank you so much jefferson i'm so glad we got to talk about this and uh uh we'll revisit it once we see how things go with their marketing campaign yeah exactly exactly well call me anytime you know i'm always happy to talk all right thank you very much man all righty bye-bye all right bye-bye Again, again, again.